The sea has never been friendly to man. At most, it has been the accomplice of human restlessness. Joseph Conrad Hello, my name is not Joseph Conrad. My name is Guillaume Lamotte, and I am the author of the History of Exploration podcast. I like to start my show with quotes. I think it kind of sounds cool, and maybe it gets you thinking a little bit. To an incredible extent, the history of exploration wouldn't have been possible without maritime history and the history of sea travel. The Phoenicians, whose colonization of the western Mediterranean Brendan is about to introduce to you today, weren't only great traders and seafarers and travelers, they were also great explorers. In fact, you might not know that they may even have circumnavigated Africa 2,000 years before the Portuguese would try to do so again. If that piqued your interest, and I hope it did, it certainly piqued the interest of many renowned historians such as Herodotus, then please join me at the History of Exploration podcast, wherever podcasts are found, or on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash History of Exploration. See you there. All right, Brendan, take it away. Thanks for the intro, Guillaume, and welcome back one and all to the Maritime History Podcast. Today's menu calls for episode 23, Setting Up Shop in the Central Med. Quick before we dive in today, please do listen to the History of Exploration when you're done with this episode. It's a fairly new podcast that is very well done, and it dovetails perfectly with our current discussion I'm sure it will continue to do so into the future as well, so give it a listen and get on board early. Alright, when we weighed anchor last episode, we left the Phoenicians in a bit of a pickle. They'd seen some good days as Tyre grew in power and reach, reopening trade routes with Egypt and continuing amicable relations with Israel and other powers in the eastern Mediterranean. The wealth of natural resources that were the lifeblood of the growing Phoenician trade network drew the interest of some not-so-nice new neighbors, the Assyrian Empire. By 850 BCE, we saw the depiction on the Assyrian palace gates of Tyrian ships bringing tribute to the conquering Assyrian king. While Assyria normally dismantled the areas that it conquered, We saw how it left the Phoenicians largely intact, so as to siphon off the resources that the well-oiled Phoenician network could bring back to the Levant and within the Assyrian grasp. You might even say, as some historians have, that Assyria never really conquered the Phoenicians, that instead they just came to some kind of understanding that the Phoenician cities would simply pay tribute to the Assyrian king. Be that as it may, today we begin to answer the question that I posed at the conclusion last time. What do you do when your bullying neighbor seizes a major source of your commodities and then demands that you keep up on your tribute payments as well? The short answer is that you look for new income sources, and luckily for the Phoenicians, those sources lay to the west. Only water stood in the way, and if anyone was equipped to overcome that barrier, it was the Phoenicians. I feel like a bit of a skipping record on some of our episodes lately, but an initial point to be made today is that the chronology of Phoenician colonization is a hotly debated topic. 
current and ongoing archaeology continues to change the contours of the landscape. As you can imagine, the extent of the widespread colonization around the Mediterranean means that there are hundreds of Phoenician sites spanning several centuries. So I'm really going to distill this down to the basics as much as we currently understand them to be. Of course, we'll also focus on the major sites that are always mentioned, as these can give us a good idea of what the Phoenician colonizers had in mind as they picked the sites that became smaller locations of their colonizing. It is interesting to note the major commonalities between the Phoenician colonies, so let's lay the groundwork here by just listing off a few of those characteristics, and then we'll get into some examples of colonies when they were founded and the theories about why. Without any concrete basis, but with what seems to be some concrete logic, many historians have theorized that in building their various colonies, the Phoenicians attempted to emulate the ideal situation in which the mother city, Tyre, existed. Built on an island, equipped with natural harbors that were then expanded, easily defensible, and, perhaps most important of all, in possession of a natural freshwater spring. Tyre was the perfect city for a maritime people. Without delving into too much detail on specific examples yet, we should still note that a majority of Phoenician colony sites were situated in locations that were island-like, on promontories or in locations with natural harbors and easy sea access. In Braudel's words, the Phoenician colonists attempted to recreate Tyre's ideal urban geography wherever possible, to the extent that in many of the far western colonies, the city site was located on one side of a river, while the necropolis was located on the other side of whatever form the water boundary took. Likewise, in Tyre itself, the main city was located on the island off the Lebanese coast but the necropolis site was located back on the mainland, separated from the island by about two kilometers. Thus, it seems that Phoenician colonists even attempted to emulate the mother city's physical layout. When we begin to look at the motivating factors behind the Phoenician push westward, as we mentioned with our closing question from last time, a big factor there can be seen in the proximity of their sites to the location of natural resources. In the eastern and central Mediterranean, the main natural resource to be had was iron. But we will see how the far west allowed the Phoenicians to tap into a rich source of silver as well. On top of all this focus on natural resources, the Phoenicians also had a stake in the trade of goods and wares from various locations around the Near East. It's really from these goods, things like pottery and, of course, the purple-dyed cloth, for which they are still remembered, it's from the presence of these goods at archaeological sites that we can base our understanding of their presence and influence through colonization and trade, how they expanded, the relationships that they had with the peoples where they expanded. As we now begin to leave the confines of the eastern Mediterranean in our discussion, just as the first Phoenician colonizers once did, 
it will be helpful to sketch a broad overview of the sea itself and the main trade routes that were commonly taken. Considering that the Mediterranean Sea is wider longitudinally than it is in latitude, any seafaring from the Phoenician homeland westward would have probably taken one of three major routes. In essence, those are a northern route along the coasts and islands of Greece, then around Sicily, and into the Tyrrhenian Sea between the west of Italy and the island of Sardinia. This northern route was likely plied by Greek merchants and the Tyrian or other eastern merchants who had business in the Aegean or Italy itself, as there are faster routes that would get you further west in a shorter time. The second route is the other extreme, the southern route, that would have taken a Phoenician sailor along the coast of northern Africa and past many ports of call. On this route, we would naturally see stops in the Nile Delta region, then in Libya and Tunis, where we will see the founding of what's perhaps the most well-known Phoenician city, Carthage. What we can call the third route was the central one, a departure from the coasts and a voyage on the open sea. The lineup of islands in the Mediterranean actually make this route the most logical, if your goal is to reach far west in a short time. If departing from the Levant, it would be simple to make a few stops on Cyprus, Crete, Malta, Sicily, and Sardinia, while cutting out the time-consuming matter of navigating coastal waters. This middle route would, of course, require the ability to navigate the open water. But as we saw last time, the Phoenicians were well known for their capabilities in that department. They could even navigate by the stars at night, and on the open water they wouldn't have to worry as much about the dangers inherent in coastal navigation. These three major routes, even if they are a bit simplistic, give us some idea of how the Phoenicians would have sailed west, depending on their destination. And to a degree, these routes are self-evident, assuming the requisite skill and technology. The Phoenicians obviously possessed both of those things, so let's now see why they established these routes, including the settlements and trading posts that they set up along the way. When looking at the grand scope of history, it's easy to lose the forest for the trees, and I hope I've not fallen prey to that tendency here. Anyway, so far in the podcast we've been focused on the eastern Mediterranean because, well, that's where the main action was in the early stages of the historical record. I say historical record there because of this very point. There was plenty going on in the western Mediterranean too. Maybe not as far back in history, maybe not to such a large degree, but something was going on. I haven't discussed it much yet because the written record to back up the archaeology is very sparse. We couldn't really paint a full picture if we tried. But I think it's finally time to begin filling in the gaps and expanding the scope of our focus on the podcast here. The fact that there was already an independent scene growing in the western Mediterranean was probably one of the major draws for the Phoenicians to extend their reach in that direction. 
After all, the Assyrians had come knocking in the Phoenician homeland, and as their collective coffers began to feel the pressure, they set out in the hopes of remedying that situation. Considering the levels of trade and relative interconnection that were present in the Bronze Age, stretching west out to the Aegean and Greece proper, I find it a bit hard to believe that the peoples of the east had no knowledge of the resources that lay further west. On the basis of the sites that we'll now look at more closely, it seems that the Phoenicians had a moderate presence in the central Mediterranean even before the Assyrians tightened the screws. In any event, it's clear that as they pushed further and further west, they weren't entering a vacuum. No, it seems that they were actually sailing into the midst of a region where a pretty healthy regional trade was already in place. It certainly wasn't of the caliber that the eastern reaches of the sea had been able to attain, but it's surprising nonetheless. Enough generalizing from me today, though. Let's go ahead and talk about the people that occupied the central areas of the Mediterranean and how exactly the Phoenicians got on with them and established some colonies in that area. The first candidates that normally come to mind in relation to the central Mediterranean are normally the Greeks. We will get there eventually, I promise, but hopefully you recall the rather dramatic decline of the Mycenaeans during the Bronze Age collapse. The Aegeans saw a precipitous drop in population, with a corresponding reduction in their cities and levels of trade sophistication. Not to fear, though, a remnant remained, and within a couple hundred years, they'd begun to tidy things up a bit. Some evidence for this resurgence comes from the village of Lefkandi, on the second largest Greek island, Euboea. Before we get a glimpse of that evidence, though, I wanted to let you know that the traditional theory has been one that viewed Phoenician colonization in the West as being a reaction to the Greek resurgence an effort by the Phoenicians to solidify their hold on trade in the Mediterranean, and to prevent the Greeks from impinging on that trade. We'll see how the Phoenicians definitely took a slant in that direction later on in their colonization. But I'll not beat around the bush here, I'll simply catch the birds straight out. I think, in conjunction with some more recent scholarship, that early on, the Phoenicians did a great deal to reconnect the emerging Greek cities with the trade networks to the east, networks that the Mycenaeans had once largely overseen. We have some pretty good evidence for this theory at Lefkandi, as I mentioned. It's generally thought that in the late 10th century BCE, which is the general time frame when Hiram was king in Tyre, perhaps a little after that, but it's generally thought that in that window of time, the Eubians were the only Greeks capable of mid-distance maritime trade. Euboea had been the first Greek island to really coalesce into an Iron Age center. Even then, though, there's no evidence for them having been present in trade to their east, especially far enough east to have reached the Phoenician centers in the Levant. This being the case, it rather surprised archaeologists working in Lefkandi when they began to unearth a tomb that they dubbed Tomb 86. 
Within this tomb lay the skeleton of a Greek Dark Age woman, a woman of high status from all appearances. She was buried with many bronze objects, hair coils, and dress pins. She also wore nine gold rings, and was buried with her hands clasped on top of an intricately crafted bronze bowl. The presence of fine objects in a tomb isn't the item of note here. Such objects have been found in elite burials throughout time. What's notable, even highly significant here, is that these bronze objects, the accessories, the bowl, the gold rings, they were all of Near Eastern origin, likely coming from Cyprus, but perhaps even from the mainland. Now, since the Eubians weren't sailing their way east to Cyprus, it stands to reason that the Phoenicians were instead making their way west, taking the first steps in their eventual push to the western ends of the Mediterranean. Technically, they'd never remove themselves from trade in the Aegean altogether, but it isn't until the Eubians that the region begins to see life after the collapse on a remarkable scale. By the end of the 9th century BCE, the Eubians had come into their own, and integrated themselves into the trade network of the Mediterranean. Greek pottery increasingly found its way back east to the Levant, and Phoenician goods, even their transport of Egyptian goods, also found their way west and into the growing Greek sphere. I referenced at some point previous that the Phoenicians, when they weren't establishing their own colonies, had a tendency to collaborate with other peoples in establishing trade outposts. Evidence of the early Greek cooperation with the Phoenicians can be seen in the trading posts at Almina, a site located near the mouth of the Orontes River, which itself is located in northern Syria. From the first joint enterprises with the Eubians, the Phoenicians seem to have worked alongside other Greek cities over the course of their development, cities like Corinth. As we'll get into now, the Phoenicians didn't stop there, not by a long stretch, but the enduring influence of the Near East upon the development of post-Dark Age Greece is quite evident. This influence took many forms, but one area where the Phoenicians left their particular mark in Greece concerns literal marks of a sort. I'm referring to the Phoenician alphabetic script, the Greek adaption of which first appears back at Lefkandi, round about 770 BCE, so after an extended period of contact between the two cultures. Beyond the alphabet and its influence on writing, Richard Miles also notes that many Phoenician innovations in the realm of maritime commerce also infected the nascent Greek culture. His list includes Phoenician contributions like interest-bearing loans, maritime insurance, joint financing of commercial ventures, deposit banking, and possibly weights and measures. For my part, I see forms of interest-bearing loans, maritime insurance, even the joint financing of commerce, back even as far as Bronze Age Mesopotamia. But the Phoenicians doubtless refined these tools and contributed the others listed above. Phoenician presence in the Aegean doesn't fall outside the limits of anything that we've discussed so far. 
The Levantine merchants of the Bronze Age plied the same waters, and the Mycenaeans were also far-ranging in their trade. Something that may surprise you, though, is that by the late 9th century BCE, so in the years between 830 to 800 or so, somewhere in that window, the Phoenicians and the Eubians had begun to tap into something that had until then been a regional trade network centered on the Tyrrhenian Sea. This portion of the larger Mediterranean is the portion that lies between the western coast of Italy, the island of Sicily, just off the toe of the Italian boot, and the islands of Sardinia and Corsica that lie west of Italy and directly north of North Africa, modern-day Tunisia to be precise. Our main focus in this region, and it seems that it was a main focus for the Phoenicians also, is the island of Sardinia. Before we can witness the first Phoenician contact with this island, though, we first need to roll back the clock and meet the island's Bronze Age inhabitants, a people that many of you may not have heard mentioned before. If you haven't, that's understandable. They were minor players on the grand historical stage, but in and around the Tyrrhenian Sea, they were actually quite influential in establishing a small-scale maritime trade. The name of these regional mariners is derived from a more terrestrial remnant of their existence, the Nuragas they built and which are still generously littered around the island. The Nuragic civilization as we now know it built at least 10,000 of these tower-fortress-type structures, and about 7,000 of them are still standing today. These surprisingly large structures that are ubiquitous on the Italian island evoke something akin to the Cyclopean architecture that's more widely associated with the Mycenaean fortress cities. And although the Nuragic structures are different in form, function, location, and origin, it's hard to escape the thought that their builders may have been more prolific in their own right than we fully realize. You see, the Nuragic civilization is yet another one for which we have found no written record or evidence. So everything that we know about them is taken from archaeological finds or filtered through later Greek and Roman historians. And, well, we've already established that many of their assertions were spurious at worst and misguided regurgitation at best. Anyway, it's fortunate for our look back from the present day to see that the archaeological record on Sardinia reveals much more than just the Naragas. Archaeology has shown us that the Bronze Age occupants of the island were also prolific craftsmen. Many bronze statues of intricate design reveal the native animals, warriors, even their iconic tower structures were all central to their culture. For us here on the podcast, I'm happy to report that these distant people also left behind bronze images of boats, boats that showcase an artistic streak present in the hands that fashioned them. These bronze models aren't necessarily intricate, at least not in comparison to the models that we saw in Egypt, but they do demonstrate a functional boat form and a penchant for outfitting boats with animal figureheads. Examples of these models all share a common hull shape, something akin to, 
in my mind at least, a less curvaceous gravy boat. In the representations, the hulls seem to be mostly flat on the bottom, with curved sides and ends that terminate in soft points. Come to think of it, they seem to be about the size of a gravy boat as well, but I wouldn't recommend using one of these models for your gravy, if you were ever to get a hold of one. I found a simple version of a Nuragic boat model with a bull's head prow that was auctioned by Christie's a couple years back, and they estimated that it would sell for at least 5,000 British pounds, which is a hefty price tag for a serving dish, at least in my universe. Lame jokes aside here, it's possible that a Bronze Age Sardinian hung this inside the city Nuraga. Most versions of Nuragic boat models have a central handle and a ring in the top center, so it looks as though they were made to be hung from the ceiling or from a ceremonial place, perhaps, used as a decoration. What these bronze boat models tell us about the Nuragic people is kind of self-evident. They were acquainted enough with boating and maritime travel that they devoted portions of their artistic pursuit toward representing watercraft. Given the lack of textual record, we're somewhat limited in what we can safely conclude based on the models alone. But evidence from locations around the Mediterranean seems to indicate that Nuragic pottery and copper ingots had found their way as far east as Cyprus, while Cypriot copper found its way west to even the interior of the large island of Sardinia. Apparently then, this island in the central Mediterranean wasn't quite as peripheral in relation to Bronze Age trade as it was once thought to be. On top of that, Mycenaean pottery has been found on Sardinia, so that leaves us with a question that's a little tough to answer. Were the Bronze Age Sardinians plying the sea and directly participating in trade with Crete and Cyprus, or, what is perhaps more likely, were the Mycenaeans pushing a bit further west than we thought them to have done? This latter case seems the more probable of the two, but in the absence of written evidence for the Nuragic sites, we can just conclude that however the goods changed hands, they clearly did so. Even if the Sardinian occupants weren't sailing too far east, it's more agreed upon that they were making the trek between their island and the Italian mainland on a regular basis. Plenty of evidence exists for a more regional trade between Sardinia and Italy's western coast. But I'll not spend time on it here. It's debatable whether the people that we know as the Etruscans were present in Italy back in the 700s BCE, but they will certainly enter our story before much longer. Anyway, the Bronze Age collapse that so severely affected the eastern Mediterranean seems not to have bothered the Sardinians and the early Italians this far west, save for cutting off Mycenaean trade and perhaps insulating the central Mediterranean a bit more than it was already. The Phoenicians then can be seen as reconnecting this smaller trade network with the markets to the east, just as they had brought an increase in activity to the Aegean. 
The Greek Dark Ages cut off the Aegean sailors from any major contact with Sardinia as well. But at the same rough time, both the Phoenicians and the Eubians arrived on the Sardinian scene. Our first indication of Phoenician presence on Sardinia takes the form of an inscribed stella, or stone. It's known as the Nora Stone, because it was found near the ancient Sardinian site known as Nora. I'll get to the geographical significance of this find in a moment, but for now, let's look at the inscription itself and see what we can learn. It's a fragment of the original hole, jagged edges on all sides, while the top row of Phoenician letters is cut in half. I couldn't find a description of the stone's size, save for several authors who described it as being monumental. In the pictures that I rustled up, it does appear to be of decent size, maybe a meter tall and half as wide. It looks quite thick as well. I mentioned the size in relation only to the rough date that's been arrived at for the stone's inscription. Generally, archaeologists date the stone to the first half of the 9th century BCE. So 850 BCE, maybe a little earlier or a little later. I really appreciated Fernand Braudel's humorous point that, quote, putting up monumental inscriptions is not, of course, the first priority of sailors on voyages of discovery. If we can agree with him on that point, then we must concede that the Phoenicians had arrived in Sardinia at least a few years before the inscription seems to have been made. Support for this possibility comes from the text of the stone, the inscription itself. Wouldn't you know it, there are multiple interpretations of what this inscription actually signifies. But since an examination of each theory in turn would take an inordinately long amount of time, here's the theory that is most accepted at present. It appears that the Nora Stone inscription was tied to the dedication of a temple on Sardinia. The text makes reference to the island where the temple was being built. It's called Chardon, a Phoenician name that seems to be the earliest use of the island's modern name, Sardinia. Beyond that, though, the temple connection comes from a reference to the Phoenician god Pumayatan, roughly equivalent to the Greek god Pygmalion. Although one interpretation of this stone saw it as commemorating a military victory, historian Robin Lane Fox sees the text as, quote, honoring a god, most probably in thanks for the traveler's safe arrival after a storm. If Fox's interpretation holds any water, we must also factor in the appearance of the word Tarshish in the inscription. For you biblical scholars, you'll likely recognize this name from the story of Jonah and the whale. The ship from which Jonah was cast was sailing from Joppa to Tarshish. Now, the physical location of the ancient city of Tarshish is another one of those historical mysteries. It's debated even if it was a city or a region, and proposed answers to the mystery have placed it all over the Mediterranean. To date, no wholly satisfactory answer has surfaced. The Hebrew Bible mentions Tarshish in close connection with King Hiram of Tyre, who we said ruled around the middle of the 900s BCE. 
If, as some historians have proposed, Tarshish was located in modern-day Spain, that means that the Phoenicians were already in the western reaches of the Mediterranean before they began to found their colonies much closer to home. It is possible that they had explored the entirety of the Mediterranean before they began to choose sites to settle down, but it seems a bit more unlikely. Josephus identifies Tarshish as being a city in the south of Asia Minor, which sounds a bit more likely. It would place it more within the sphere of Phoenician activity during the 10th century BCE, as we've outlined it. But then how does the Nora Stone fit into that paradigm? Problems of interpreting that stone may bear some blame for the competing theories here, but it's another entry to add to the book of historical mysteries, anyhow. Solving those long-debated topics isn't really our goal here, so let's talk a bit more about Sardinia and why the mariners from the east would have sought to set up shop there. I think we've established by now that a main driver for the Phoenician push west was their search for new natural resource deposits. In the large island of Sardinia, that search struck gold in the figurative sense, but in the literal sense it struck natural deposits of copper, lead, iron, and silver. These resources had been utilized by the native Nuraga people for quite some time, but once the Phoenicians arrived on the scene in the late 9th or early 8th century BCE, they integrated themselves into the local population and commerce rather quickly. The site of Santembenia, for instance, seems to have been a center of trade and industry, a metal-working village where native people worked their trade and the Phoenicians integrated with their already established center to further facilitate export of metals and other goods. Amphorae of wine are also frequently uncovered by archaeologists. Without getting too far into the intricacies of archaeological comparison, the shape and craftsmanship of Amphora actually help us better understand the movements of these ancient people, who arrived where from where, and how their integration influenced the trade of the native peoples. It's kind of tempting to compare ancient colonization efforts to the colonization that we think of in the modern sense, the arrival of the English in the New World or some such. But really, we have no first-hand accounts from the Phoenician colonists. There is the account of Pythias and his journey of exploration, but that's a bit different. We will cover it in due time but check out the History of Exploration podcast for instant gratification there. What we do know about Phoenician colonizers is that they initially integrated themselves into Nuragic settlements and patterns. The Phoenicians weren't entirely alone, it seems that the Eubians weren't far behind them. Just as the Phoenicians integrated themselves in various places, these early Greeks did the same, they were also present at Santembenia. The Eubians established standalone settlements, just like the Phoenicians. Settlements like the one at Pithacusa, an island in the Bay of Naples. Before the eastern mariners arrived, the Nuragic population of Sardinia was involved in trade with the west coast of Italy. 
But once the Eubians and Phoenicians began establishing additional settlements, both on Sardinia and in Italy, the trade began to increase, as you probably expected. Surprisingly, at the earliest periods of increased trade in Sardinia and the region, it seems that the Levantine and Greek merchants worked together. There are indications of such in both Santambenia and Pithacusa. Historian Richard Miles points out that the Phoenicians were most likely focused on gaining control of silver deposits, while the early Eubians weren't concerned with silver, more so with iron. He argues rather convincingly that, quote, in the first colonial ventures in the central Mediterranean, one witnesses the growth of the middle ground on which Phoenician, Greek, and indigenous populations interacted and cooperated. Again, there is a lot of current research going into these earliest of colonization efforts, and it would bog us down more than I think is beneficial. So we'll continue on to see where else the Phoenicians wound up and why. If we view Sardinia and the Tyrrhenian Sea as the middle ground for the Phoenicians, then further west we must go, as they did. Archaeology has begun to reveal that by the second half of the 8th century BCE, the Phoenicians had begun to found settlements of their own in the central Mediterranean, especially on Sardinia. This would indicate that they'd begun to separate themselves from the Nuragic trade environment, at least partially, and had set their sights on other goals. Many of these holy Phoenician settlements were aligned with the list of geographical requirements that we saw earlier. They were on islands or promontories. They had natural harbors. They were directly adjacent to the sources of natural deposits, metal ore, or other useful goods. While the Phoenicians had initially participated in the more regional trade, these new settlements signal the increase of their focus on the west, as Sardinia is perfectly positioned to be a central entrepot between the Phoenician homeland and the far west. Not to mention, their attempt at separation from the local networks indicates that they'd begun trying to assert some control of their own over the resources. They'd occupied a few of the local Noraga forts, and though they continued their relationship with the locals, this separation is just more indication of their desire to ensure resource supply in the central Mediterranean, so that they could push further west. I think that this is a good place to put the bookmark on our discussion today. Next time, we'll get into the founding of Carthage and the Phoenician cities in the far west, Cadiz, Huelva, and the cities that were founded outside the Pillars of Hercules. Now, I hope that the chronology here has been understandable. I apologize if it hasn't. The timing of when these colonies all were founded is hotly disputed, and although I'm doing the best I can, I'm sure that many of you would disagree with some of the dates I've adopted. It seems from a big-picture perspective that the Phoenicians had begun working with local producers in Sardinia, Italy, and even as far west as Spain and Iberia, before they began founding cities of their own. When they began founding these cities, it looks to be their way of solidifying control of the resources in those areas. 
Carthage falls smack in the middle of their period of expansion. And although I've painted Sardinia as being central to their trade network, Carthage is the real center, as we'll see from its growth. Basically then, although it makes sense for us to divide our discussions based upon geography, the ancient merchants of Tyre were probably active at various places around the Mediterranean in the same relative periods of time. There's a marked shift in their focus on building original settlements, though. So next time, we will begin to look more at that shift, their silver mining operations in Spain, and the beginnings of the most famous Phoenician city outside Tyre. Maybe even including Tyre. Today, I'm going to wrap up with a few items of housekeeping, so I'll leave it in your hands to decide whether or not you desire to hear them although I am going to mention a book that is well worth checking out, so stay tuned if that sounds interesting. First off, I'd like to issue a slight correction to the last episode's discussion of Tyre, its alliance with the Israelites. Les was kind enough to leave some very insightful comments on the website, and therein also alerted me to an error that I made last time. I incorrectly hinted that the city of Eloth was in Egypt, while it was actually in Edom, an area that came under Israel's control during the reign of King Solomon. This would place the city of Eloth directly within the territorial reach of Israel, and it would make it much more likely that Israelite alliance with Hiram and Tyre did indeed result in maritime expeditions on the Red Sea. Apologies for any misunderstanding I caused there. Next up, I'd like to tell you about an amazing book that I recently read and that you may want to check out if it sounds interesting to you. The book is titled The Sailing Frigate, A History in Ship Models, and was written by Robert Gardiner. He's written several books and articles about the developments of the sailing frigate, during its early stages up through its heyday during the Napoleonic Wars, and he's proven to be one of the go-to experts on this topic. Now, considering the popularity of the Aubrey Maturin novels, not to mention the Horatio Hornblower novels as well, which is a debate that I don't want to get in the middle of right now, but anyway, if you hold any affinity for those novels and the ships of that period, this book on the frigate and its history is probably right up your alley. It's a fairly short read, weighing in at 128 pages. In terms of actual text, it's much shorter than that, too. It's a useful and short history of the development of the sailing frigate, the ship's role in the British Navy of the 17th, 18th, even the early 19th centuries, and it discusses the intricacies of the frigate's design evolution, why it evolved in the ways that it did, things of that nature. The real highlight of the book for me is something that's not well suited to a podcast. You'll just have to look it up on the website to get a feel. The reason the text is somewhat condensed is that dozens and dozens of full-color detail images of ship models grace the pages of the book and wonderfully supplement the text with examples. What's even more significant is that most of the models used are from the collections of the National Maritime Museum in London, models that were built by the same companies 
who were attempting to get the Admiralty to adopt their design for a full-scale ship, so the models are contemporary to the design of the actual ships that they depict. In a very real sense, these models are the closest physical connection left to the frigates of the Royal Navy, all of which have been completely lost to time. For me, this book strikes a good balance between the textual discussion of the frigate's history and development, and the images that are the best possible source to supplement the discussion. I'll post some photos of the book that are representative of what you can expect within. If you love learning about the ships of this period, you're a ship modeler perhaps, or you just love a book with some good pictures, definitely check this one out. I'll post links, images, and a more complete review on the website as is my custom. Moving on, and as is another custom here on the podcast, I'd like to thank all those of you who were kind enough to leave reviews or to join the crew as supporting members. Big thanks to Gary for being the latest to sign on as a supporter through the Patreon page for the podcast. Your support there is much appreciated, Gary. On the reviews front, thanks to Literature and History Podcast and S Wheels 22 for the stars. Tune in next time for my thoughts on the Literature and History Podcast. It's an awesome podcast that you should check out. Today's episode belongs to the History of Exploration, though, which is also a podcast that should make your weekly list. And to S Wheels 22, or however one ought properly pronounce that, please don't let me be the cause of any traffic-related incidents. Copious amounts of coffee could help there, I think. But in all seriousness, I appreciated your comment on my soporific voice very much. I've experimented with giving it some more oomph, but it just sounds weird, believe me. And the soporific voice is what was in the cards at my birth, I guess. So it's what I've got to work with. Before I sign off today, I did also want to mention something that a listener and supporter from New Zealand shared with me recently. In talking with him a bit about careers outside of podcasting, he told me that he was a phlebotomist, which is someone who takes blood for a blood bank. At least that's a term we use for them here in the U.S. Anyway, he encouraged me to encourage all of you to consider giving blood, as it's actually a much-needed thing, and it can directly save lives around the world every single day, as it does. Add to that possibility, based on demographic studies of podcast consumers, that podcast listeners skew young and fairly affluent I think that some of us can afford to donate blood. But even then, you can donate blood no matter your age or income. You just need to be healthy enough to do it. Basically then, most of us have no excuse and could make a difference for someone in need. Think about it at least. And thanks, Steph, for sharing that need with all of us. That does it for me today. Thanks for sticking around during the housekeeping. Our next episode will be along in the near future, and not too far past that, the Greeks will begin to further complicate our narrative, which is something that I've been looking forward to for a long time. Until next time, everyone, thanks for listening to the Maritime History Podcast. <laughs>